Amen. All right, how are you? I have three people that said they were good. Everybody else is, what, are you waiting to see how you're going to feel in a few minutes? How many of you are sleepy? And the rest of you said, we will be. <laughs> Hope not. Okay, but we'll see. Um, so last uh, about, what, six weeks or so, we've been doing the lie detector series, and we've been focused on, what, what should we say, the, what the world says about Christianity or the Bible, kind of the opposition, and then how the Bible, you know, what it teaches in, in terms of the truth. Uh, we're going to kind of shift focus. We're still in the lie detector series, but we're going to be starting to deal with um, misquotes of the Bible, okay, or, or ways that Christians um, maybe believe something that's not quite right. And so this week, uh, I want to start with this, this one issue. Um, I've heard this a lot over the years. I haven't heard it lately, and I don't know if it's, you know, I actually preached on this a while back, and maybe, maybe we just got it. Maybe this is just going to be so redundant. People are going to be like, I don't know why we're still talking about this. But um, it's, the, it's the saying, and, and you've heard this, I'm sure, but God won't give you more than you can handle, right? You've heard that before? Um, so how many of you have a pet peeve? How many of you are not willing to say that you have a pet peeve? How many of you, your pet peeve is raising your hand in church? <laughs> um, yeah, I get it. I don't, I don't want to be forced to do anything I don't want to do. That's a pet peeve of mine, so I get it. Um, but the thing is that I have a little, I have, I have many pet peeves, but one is the, uh, when, when we misuse a passage of Scripture and we twist it, and especially this one, because when, when the saying is, um, God won't give you more than you can handle, I understand that the, it, it's intended to be encouraging, right? Well, you're going through something difficult, and uh, we're trying to build you up and encourage you along, and you can get through this, and you can make it, and, and uh, maybe even the idea is um, uh, another unbiblical quote, <laughs> uh, if God brought you to it, then he'll bring you through it, right? I don't, who said that? I don't even know where that came from. But it's not that it's totally untrue, but it's just if, you, if you're not mature enough to understand what the Scripture actually teaches, it might build a false expectation, okay? And the false expectation is this, that um, as a Christian, I'll only have to deal with um, difficulties that will reach the level of medium, right? I'll never get to severe or very difficult situations. It'll never be high difficulty level. It'll just be medium. Just, just as much as what I can handle, that's the only thing I'm going to have to go through, what I can deal with. Now, biblically speaking, scripturally and theologically speaking, that's a problem because um, God wants you to depend on Him for not just difficult things, but for everything, right? How many of you have seen this on Facebook or some other meme? I don't know what other platforms people use. I'm like an old person now. So 
Um, so the meme is, is uh, you know, the question, do you need Jesus to go to heaven, right? And then the answer is, bro, you need Jesus to go to Walmart. Have you, <laughs> you've seen that? Like, so this is the idea. I need Jesus because I'm a sinner and everything in my life that I'm not depending on Jesus for or through or with um, is going to become a problem. I I need him. I need him absolutely. I need him from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed. I need him in every situation, no matter what. I I depend on him. So the idea that, you know, um, God won't give you more than you can handle is... Actually, in the way I'm thinking of it, so anti-scriptural and anti-Christian that it, it basically says you can do your whole life without God. You don't really need Him. He won't bring anything into your life that you can't handle yourself without Him. That's, to me, that just doesn't make any sense as a Christian. That that we now that's not what we mean, though, right? But what does the Bible really teach? So it says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But that doesn't mean that I won't go through hard things. In fact, I'll probably go through so many hard things that I'm going to have to really dig deep and depend and trust the Lord through things I can't even understand. And, you know, I look around the congregation and I know that many, many people have been through and are going through and will go through some things that that they don't even understand. Why? How? What's going to happen? How's it going to turn out? What, you know, why did God even allow that to happen in my life? And, and yet, what I also see is this huge testimony of trust and faith and how your experience of a difficulty that you didn't even understand, trusting the Lord, and then other people saw that and were encouraged. And we're going to see that that's actually much more what the Bible teaches um, so let's look at what the Bible actually says. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, 1 through 13 says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. You get the importance of all, all the Israelites, all the Jewish people went through all these experiences. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. There it is. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Father, we thank you that your word teaches us, tells us, encourages us, challenges us um, to trust you in the midst of difficulty, to pursue you, Lord, when the world is very tempting. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are better. You are more, you are enough, you are more than enough, Lord, for us. Um, You're more desirable, Lord, but uh, we got to get out of our own way. We, we need you. We need to make sure that we trust and depend on you, Father, and that we understand what your word says, what it means, how to apply it, how to live it, how to live it in such a way that we can be a witness to other people around us for their sake, for your glory, um, and there's a blessing in it for us too, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So one of the things that I want you to see here as we're um, talking about this particular issue, I don't know if you caught it, you saw it, but um, he was saying that uh, the issue is temptation and and sin, and God will provide a way out, and God will give you the way to avoid falling into and falling into the trap and being cursed by and having the results of sin. That was the main issue. But there's a context that we have to get our hands around, and it's a, actually it's a, a pretty big context. If you, you have to go back more than a chapter to see kind of what the whole context of this passage is really about. So I would say, okay, go back to chapter 8 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 8, 11 says, So uh, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, before, I mean, that sentence probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you know what's going on. Paul is talking to the Corinthian people about this, this thing that was going on in their church, which is that they lived in a city where there were a lot of uh, temples, they sacrificed animals to false gods, to pagan uh, idols, to demons, is what he says. And so that was part of the marketplace, and they would go and they'd buy these packages of meat, and then somebody might say, well, that was sacrificed to this idol. Now, Paul says, the idol is nothing, it's, it, th- this doesn't really matter, you can eat that meat, it's okay, um, but your brother who sees you do this may think, your Christian brother may think, that uh, you are worshiping an idol when you buy this meat and eat this meat. And so you might have to be really careful. It's not really a problem for you. It's not going to destroy your faith or your conscience, or it's not really an issue of, of your relationship with God. But it does matter for the, the other person who isn't strong enough in their faith to understand that it's okay. So that was the context for him. And so he says, by your knowledge, this weak person, this other Christian brother who's not as mature as you are, they're destroyed, um, and Christ died for them. And he says, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. And so in our day, we don't have a lot of pagan temples sacrificing animals where we buy the meat, but we do have some other things that go on in our culture that a stronger Christian who is not convicted about certain things may be able to indulge in to a certain degree, but it might destroy the faith of somebody who's weaker. One of the things is alcohol. So what does the Bible teach that 
it's not necessarily wrong or sinful to drink alcohol as a, um, in moderation. Now, there's an absolute prohibition against getting drunk, right? We all know that. Scripture teaches that very clearly. Getting drunk is, is a sin against the Lord and against your own body. What happens, though, in our culture, though, as Christians, what he says here, I think, applies to us over here in terms of alcohol, where you may not really have a conviction about it. It's not a problem for you. You're not an alcoholic. You can have one drink, and that's, that's enough for you. You can be done with it. When you drink, this other Christian over here who's not as strong as you, doesn't know as much as you, and, and does have a conviction about drinking, sees you drink, and then what happens to them is they think that it's okay for Christians to drink, and so they begin to drink in excess, and by your freedom, you've destroyed their faith, or their walk, or their growth, or their life. So this is a, this is a problem um, within the church that we don't just do things because it's okay for us to do. We think about how it impacts the people around us, what they see, and how they're going to interpret their Christian life according to what you're doing. So then the other thing is, why is this the context? Because in verse, or chapter 10, verse 24, he says, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. What you have is bookends here where he's saying, You have to be concerned as a Christian, as a stronger Christian. So what is this really? This whole passage is for more mature Christians to learn how to be better Christians. Okay, so what we're going to be dealing with here, sometimes we, we talk about things at the, the, the zero level. Like if, if nobody was a Christian, we could all understand this and we could get something from it and it's the gospel and you could get saved because you're just going to hear the, the pure gospel of who Jesus is and how you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And sometimes we're going to be way over here in, in some really important, wise teaching about how to be more mature. So we're kind of in the... The spectrum, we're kind of moving towards the more mature teaching, okay? But what's going on here says, let no one uh, seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So everything in between has to do with how you as a Christian live your life in such a way that it helps other people who need to see a good example. And it's not all about you, right? So... Here's what Paul says. Chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. He's, I like the word ignorant. The NIV says ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant about um, these things, brothers. He says that several times. He said it over in chapter 12. I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. He says it in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who die, what happens if they're in Christ and you're still living. When Jesus returns, what's going to happen in, in this whole thing? Right? He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about that. And so what he's saying is, okay, you guys have some knowledge about spiritual things, but there's, sometimes there's a little bit of a gap because we, we misunderstand something or we're focused on the wrong thing. And so right here he's saying, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he's going to talk about the Jewish people. And what he's talking about here is that as Christians, we sometimes get this notion that the uh, Israelites um, were basically, they're people of the book, and they're, they're basically academic believers. They had the law, 
they had the commands, they had the rules and the regulations, and so, you know, their faith was really based on law and order, and they didn't have, you know, the kind of experiences that we have. We have the Holy Spirit. We, we got saved when we, we understood that we were sinners, that we needed a Savior, that Jesus was our Savior. When He died on the cross, He died for me, and the Holy Spirit came into me, and I had this this moment of clarity and, and realization and, and conviction, and I came to Christ, and I had this wonderful spiritual experience, and I was weeping, right? Anybody have these kinds of experiences? And we think that the Jewish people didn't have any of that. They were just like studious and serious. And, and Paul says, listen, guys, they were baptized in the cloud. They were baptized into Moses, but they, they all were in the sea. They ate this, this manna. They uh, received water from the rock. Said they had experiences that you cannot even understand. They were so potent and powerful and beyond description. Okay, they were delivered as a whole nation. A couple million people delivered out of Egypt went through the Red Sea on dry ground. All their enemies were drowned in the Red Sea after they walked through on dry ground. They went to Mount Sinai. They saw the glory of God descend on, the, on Mount Sinai. And they were so terrified by this event that they told Moses, don't, don't let us talk to God directly. You talk to him and you tell us what he says and that'll be enough because if we talk to him or he talks to us, we're going to die. They, they saw these things. They saw the pillar of cloud you know, leading them during the day and a pillar of fire leading them at night. Every, every morning they would go out and there would be this stuff on the ground, and uh, they would go and collect it, and they put it in a jar, and then they would make it into bread. And every, every day, God would just provide that. Moses would strike a rock, and water would just come shooting out of it, and that would be the water that they drank. I mean, they had these experiences, and he says, they had plenty of spiritual experiences, okay? And yet, <laughs> what does it say? They were all... They all saw this stuff. They all had, it wasn't even necessary for them to have faith, so to speak, because they saw God as much as you can see God. They saw Him. They, they were this close to Him. And yet, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They still didn't have faith. This, isn't this weird? I mean, you find that strange? That you could have an... Ex and, but here's the deal. You can have an experience with God and then not follow up with it with following, with obedience, with faith, with loving Him. You say, wow, this is amazing that I had this experience. So he goes right into what's going to happen here uh, with the, uh, the Israelites right away, Right? He gives four examples. He says, these things were written so that you and I don't love evil or desire evil like they did. So just prevent us from making the same mistakes. He's going to give us four examples of things that we need to make sure that we don't do so that we don't end up like they did. Because what happened to all the Israelites after they had seen all these miraculous things? Remember what happened? They didn't get to go into the promised land God actually allowed them to wander in the, the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died and their kids got to inherit the promised land. 
even though these are the people that saw all the miracles. These people. And their kids were just little. If they were 20 years or older, they weren't included. Okay? They didn't get to go into the promised land. Only the kids that were 19 and younger got to inherit the promised land. So they're just, they're just kids. They're teenagers. They, I don't know. It's just strange. So here's the deal. He says, here's what happened. Um, don't be idolaters, as some of them were, verse 7. And then uh, the people sat down to eat and drink and rise up to play. Now, that's talking about the golden calf scenario. Remember that? When did we talk about that? Was that last week? Eight o'clock, couldn't remember either. Was it two weeks ago? So I don't remember, and you don't remember. So you're not going to remember today either. So just sit back and relax. It'll all be over soon. So what happened was that all these people were around Mount Sinai. They saw the fire, the glory, the wonder of God, and they were just trembling with fear. Within a month, okay, Moses goes up. He gets the Ten Commandments and the law of God. Within a month, okay, less than a month, they're like, where's Moses? Where do you, we don't know. Where'd that guy go that was leading us? And so uh, why don't we just... Aaron, why don't you build an idol for us and we'll worship that? Like, are you kidding me? Like, already you're ready to bail on God because of it's been a month? Like, how long does it have to be that you're just going to ready to give up on God? So here's the thing that happens, two things. One is that people, they have a mountaintop experience. You know where that term comes from? mountaintop experience. It's not actually Mount Sinai and the golden calf and all that. It's from Elijah. Elijah goes on the mountain, Mount Carmel, and he, he, uh, he, he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and God rains down fire on his, his uh, sacrifice. Remember that? And then what does he do? He turns around, and he kills all these 400 prophets of Baal, and they're like, man, this is going to be a revival. We're going to have a, a restoration of the, the kingdom and this is going to be great, and God's going to kick Ahab out of here, or something's going to happen. He's going to maybe change his heart. We don't know. But, and he starts running, and he runs down to Beersheba ahead of Ahab's chariot. I mean, just like God has overwhelmed him and overpowered him with his Holy Spirit. He goes down there, and like within a day or two, Jezebel sends a letter that says, I'm going to kill you like you killed my prophets, and then Elijah's like ready to kill himself. Like he's, he runs away. And he says, God, it'd just be better if I died. Like, why am I here? So from mountaintop to lowest point of your life within a few days. Anybody ever had that happen? <laughs> this is what I think is going on is that they had a mountaintop experience, and they had a lot of them. They had a bunch of these experiences with God, and God's present. He's doing this, and he's doing that, and he's just, they're just like overwhelmed with it. And then all of a sudden... Nothing for week after week after week. They're just waiting. And I think what's happening is two things, like I said. One is mountaintop experience to a valley of, like, depression. That can happen. And, in fact, it's not unlikely that if you have a mountaintop experience that your next experience may be a, a depression or a sadness or a confusion or a questioning time. 
right? That can happen. So just be aware of that if and when you have a mountaintop experience that the next thing may not be like another mountaintop experience. But the other thing is that because they'd had so many experiences with God, I think they were actually trying to manufacture an experience with God. How can we somehow have another experience like we had before? And they try to produce it. And so there's a temptation that people have, which is um, if I have a wonderful experience at this church, then if I don't have another one next week and I don't have another one next week, if, if at some point I'm not really experiencing the same thing I experienced you know, a few weeks ago, then maybe I just need to go find a new church. I'll go find one that's more exciting or I'm going to have that feeling again. Or maybe they do things a little bit different or say things in a way that, you know, I, I like more or they have music that, you know, really gets to me or whatever it is. You know, we, we begin to pursue an experience somewhere, somehow. We're looking for some way to have an experience with God that I can get charged up again. Anybody ever had that feeling like, Man, I'm looking for something, and, and here's the deal. That temptation um, is, uh, is problematic because it can really lead you far off field. And no longer is it important about the content of the truth of the message as much as it is how, how good I feel about what I'm experiencing. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to begin to compromise truth in order to get an emotional response. And there are lots of places and lots of things that can produce an, an emotional response. And many of them are not Christian. So then you begin to move away from the church altogether because I'm not experiencing that feeling like I used to feel at church. So I'm going I'm to go over here and I'm going to try to experience it. And, and now we become spiritual quote-unquote, spiritual people who are no longer in the church, and then we become spiritual people who are no longer Christian because we're looking for a spiritual experience instead of God. So be careful with that. I mean, we have to watch out for that. Um, It's fine to have experiences with the Lord. Actually, we, we love that, um, but that's not the truth. The truth is His Word and His Son and the promises that He make, made to us and receiving that. And then what we experience and where our faith grows, okay, and this is my personal testimony, your faith grows when you have long periods of not having those experiences and trusting the Lord and just being determined to trust and to walk and to obey and to follow even when I'm not having mountaintop experiences week after week and then God confirms and he says yeah here's where I'm I'm showing you the truth of who I am Uh, it's it's powerful thing but we got to learn from their experience because they produced an experience but it was uh, it was evil (laughs) idolatry He says do not be idolaters as some of them were idolatry is self listen the the word idol what, what does that word mean? It means image. And who is the image of God? Who, who did God make in his own image? <laughs> Somebody said Jesus, yeah. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. 
we are made in his image. He put his stamp on us. And, he's, and here's what happens is that it, idolatry is self-worship. Whatever other, other form it, it finds itself in, ultimately idolatry is worshiping of self, exalting my, me above God. And this is what they did. They ended up having a orgy basically, to try to have an experience, and then they try to somehow make this a spiritual time. You see how far off you can get really quickly? Um, verse 8 says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Now he's referring to a different occasion, uh, and uh, 23,000 fell in a single day. So he's talking about Numbers chapter 25, okay? The most exciting book in the Bible the book of Numbers. I'm telling you, you keep not reading it. It's all the good stuff is in there. So what happens in Numbers 25 is that th this story, and you all know it, is you have Balak, who is a Midianite, who is terrified that uh, the, the Israelites, as they're wandering in the desert, uh, that they're going to conquer his people, his land, his, his uh, nation. And so he um, hires Balaam, to come and curse the Israelites for him, for his, uh, his own benefit, right? He takes them up to a mountaintop, says, see all these people, pronounce a curse on them and, uh, so that they won't defeat me and, de and destroy me. And Balaam, on his way to this mountaintop, you remember what happens? He's riding a donkey. The donkey turns around and talks to him, right? So everybody knows that story. So Balaam uh, can't curse God's people because God won't let him. He, he, won't, he, he tries to, and all he does is bless them over and over and over. He just keeps blessing them. And Balak is furious with Balaam. He's like, what are you doing? I called you over here to curse them. You keep blessing them. And so finally he says, listen, I can't curse them, but they can curse themselves. So here's how you do it. You tempt them with your women, and you get them to commit sexual immorality, and then they'll destroy themselves. You don't have to destroy them. They can destroy themselves. And so he actually does this, and in one day, 23,000 of them are killed. Because, not because they were cursed by Balaam or Balak, because they indulged in a slow progression of immorality. It just began to wander, and they began to go in the wrong direction, away from the Lord, and into selfish desire. And they just killed themselves. It was, it was a lot easier for Balaam to do that than it was for him to oppose God and try to curse them directly immediately. And so here's the deal, is that we have these things that begin to tug our attention away from the Lord. You ever find that? How many of you, you get up, you have all good intentions, you got your Bible in the morning, your cup of coffee, ready to go, you start reading the Bible, and how many of you, like, almost instantly start getting really sleepy? Like, uh, like well, maybe I just close my eyes for a minute, and then I'll, I'll perk up again. And, and you wake up, you're like, whoa, what happened? Some people, um, they just, they have that phone, and it's sitting right there, and you're reading a couple verses, and you're like, oh, i got to check my email. 
And you're like, oh, yeah, I need to get on Facebook. And before you know it, all your prayer time and all your devotional time has been sucked away by your phone just calling your attention over. And, right? Anybody else? Like, that's happened? And you don't have, like, all day to do this. Like, you, you, you scheduled, like, 20 minutes. And boom, your 20 minutes is gone. And now i got to go to work. Or i got to get to the next thing. And this is how... We destroy ourselves. Satan doesn't have to destroy you. He just kind of lets you have this thing in your life that will just take your attention away from him, away from the Lord. And before you know it, you're way over here. He says, uh, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Um, That story is is Numbers uh, 21. And this story is interesting because... They're grumbling against Moses and uh, everything that God's doing. And so God sends vipers. It says fiery serpents. I don't know what that, I think that means that they were poisonous. But I also kind of have this picture like they were little serpents that like were on fire. Anybody have that kind of idea? Like maybe God just did something really cool and sent these little fiery serpents to bite them. Am I just weird like that? Okay. Anyway, they come and they start biting the Israelites and they're, they finally get it. And they're like, oh, God, we've sinned and, and we're sorry. And, and so here's what God does. He gets Moses aside and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp. And anytime they get bit by a serpent, they can look at the, the serpent on the pole and they can be healed. Sound good? How many of you say, I like that plan? How many of you say, God, just take the serpents away, right? I don't want to get bit by a serpent, <laughs> but you're still going to get bit by serpents, but now you have, you have healing. You can, look at the, you can look at the bronze snake and be healed, or you can say, I'm not going to look at that snake, and I'm going to die. Your choice, which is really what the New Testament says is what that is all about. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the bronze serpent on the snake. It says that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Right? And he says that if you will believe, if you will trust, if you will follow, if you will put your faith in Jesus, you have salvation, you have healing. Or you can continue to go your own way and not look to Christ and you pay the consequence yourself. That's an option. And the thing is that as an option, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that that people would choose that option and let yet the majority of people do. I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to go before the Lord um, on my own and trust and hope that my good deeds will somehow, that will be enough for God, right? I'm going to trust myself in front of the Lord. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that people would do that because even if you break one law, then you'd be guilty of breaking the law. That that would be the case. If you were to go before any court, that would be the case, wouldn't it? You broke the law, you go to the judge, and he says, you broke the law, here's the penalty. What's the eternal penalty for that? Without... Grace and forgiveness through Christ, without the healing that He offers, then it means that you pay that, because you're not gonna you're not gonna trust Him to pay it for you. I'm just saying, like God has given us a really good deal, 
And a lot of people are saying, I'll take the worst deal. I'll just, I'll take care of it myself. He says, you don't have to do that. And so here's the deal. You and I still live in a world where there are vipers and we're still going to have pain and we're still going to have difficulties. In fact, Jesus says what? In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, you won't have any problems. All your difficulties will only reach the level of medium, and you'll be able to handle them. He says, you'll have trouble, but I'm here with you. You can trust me. I'll walk with you through those things. But the, the, the result is what? You're going to have a little pain, suffering, but you have a wonderful retirement. I, I wish that... I don't know. Sometimes you think, wouldn't it be nice to have Joel Osteen's theology and just no problems, it's all good, never talk about sin and suffering and pain, only the good stuff. Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe not. Okay. Verse 10 says, don't grumble. Some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So this is the last one, number four, just so you know, we're getting close. Um, the deal was that there's so many experiences in uh, the book of Numbers, the most exciting book of the Old Testament, that, um, that he could have been talking about almost anything. There's just so many things. But there's one thing in particular that he was talking about, I think, in Numbers chapter 16. Now, in Numbers chapter 16, you have to get a picture here of what's going on with the whole Israelite community. God has just delivered them as a nation out of Egypt. Before that, they were not really a solidified nation. They were 12 tribes who were all Hebrews. Now he's making them into a nation. He's giving them a law, and he's giving them um, order, and he's giving them a land. So what happens is he's beginning to establish a priesthood. They'd never had that before. They didn't have a priesthood. They didn't have a law. They didn't have a sacrificial code. God is giving that all to them. And what happens is that there's one uh, tribe, the tribe of Levi, that's going to be the priestly tribe. We're all up to speed now. You get that? And what happens in that tribe is that there's only one family that gets to actually be priests, and all the other ones are just servants in the temple or in the tabernacle. So they carry things, and they wash things, and they put things up, and they tear things down because the, the tabernacle was a tent that had to be transported from place to place. So they're serving in the, the tabernacle, but only one tribe or one family, the, tribe, or the family of Aaron, is the actual priests who do the, the slaughtering of the animals and do all the ceremonies, and they get to wear the, the fancy robes and do all that stuff and go into the Holy of Holies and deal with the incense and... Okay, and what happened was Korah, sorry Korah, but Korah and a few people um, were grumbling against Aaron and Moses saying, we're all holy, all the Levites are holy, not just you two, not just your family, all of us are holy, we should all be priests. And Moses says, um, <laughs> listen guys, this is not like my choice, it's not like something I did, this is what God has determined. And, and so fast forward. What happens is he says, let's just do this. Let's let God make the decision. Everybody step back from Korah. Everybody get away from Korah. 
and see what happens. And Korah's a, a dude in the Old Testament. But um, he and his family go to hell alive. That's what it says. It says that the ground opened up and they alive went to Sheol. He and his whole family and all his stuff and his tent and everything else, they all went down into hell alive. So it's like a reverse um, rapture, okay? Rapture is when you get to go to heaven without dying, and Korah went to hell without dying. Now, here's the deal. You would think, now, picture this with me. Here I am and all the other Levites, we see this thing happen to Korah and his family. Wouldn't you think you'd be like, okay, we get it. We're good. Well, yeah, we love serving in the tabernacle. That's our favorite thing. Like, you can have the priesthood. We'll do our job, and we're all good. You think that would happen, right? Anybody, raise your hand. You think that's what the result should be. You know what the result was? 250 other chiefs of the Levites now are angry and complaining and grumbling against Moses and Aaron because Korah died that way. And they're saying, how dare you kill him like that? It's like, what? You think Moses can open the ground? He's a person. And so 14,700 of the Levites are killed by the destroyer because they keep grumbling against Moses and Aaron because of God's choice, because of what God had decided about the priesthood. Isn't that crazy? I just can't understand it, but that's what happens. And so he says, we, we can't grumble like some of them did and destroyed by the destroyer. Now he says this. These all happen as examples, so we need to understand those examples because they are written for us to learn from. That's the whole point. They're written down for our instruction, and we're here at the end of the ages. So and what he's saying is, Time is short, guys. Time is short. How long are we going to be here for? I mean, I might be here, you know, a couple more decades or whatever, or we might die tomorrow, or Jesus might come back. We're living in the end times, closer and closer and closer. People around us need to know Jesus Christ. This is his point. The point is, it's not all about us. It's about what we need to do to reach the people that are around us, whether that is the lost world in our community or the weaker brothers and sisters in our church or the weaker brothers and sisters in our family or the weaker brothers and sisters in our workplace or wherever we are, that we need to help them to grow, to find faith, to establish their walk with the Lord however we can because... The time is short. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We have to understand that. Here's the deal. Let me shoot you straight. No matter how mature you are, and I think that we have a lot of mature people, okay? Um, praise the Lord. We have a lot of people who know the scripture, who love the Lord, who walk with the Lord. No matter how mature, strong, and faithful you are, Sin can corrupt your thinking. You can still stumble. You can still make big mistakes. You can still do things. Even in your, your maturity that you think, this is okay for me because I'm not convicted about it or because I know where I stand with the Lord or whatever, 
that other people see and they say, well, if you can do that, then I can do that. And they don't understand how you got to that place and their faith is destroyed. Be careful lest you fall. He says, no, no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. This is all ordinary stuff. This is not this is not unusual. We get impatient. Anybody get impatient? It's one of my biggest problems in life is being impatient. Impatience is selfishness. That's my problem. I want things done on my timeline. Right? Say amen. Yeah? You should have things done on my timeline. That's great. I appreciate that. Impatience. We grumble. I want things the way that I want things. I don't understand why God's doing this. I'm, why am I going through this problem and that other person over there doesn't have that problem? They're way worse than I am, right? You ever think, like, why is that person doing so well financially, but they're such a bad person? And here I am, a good person. Thank you. It's not, it's not unusual to complain, to feel dis, discontent, to question what God's doing, to not, one, not know or understand why things are happening the way that they are, to feel tempted to do the wrong thing. This is not unusual. But God will, listen to what he says, he, do, he will not guarantee your success. He does not guarantee your success. And I'm talking about spiritual. He doesn't guarantee that you're not going to falter, that you're not going to make a big mistake and do something wrong that's going to hurt you or your family or your people or your workplace or your future. He, he says, I don't guarantee that you're not going to do something really dumb. But I will promise you this. If you will seek me, then I'll give you a way out. Anytime that temptation comes, I'll show you the door. I'll give you wisdom, I'll give you strength, but you've got to trust me and you've got to walk with me and you've got to keep your eyes on me. You keep your eyes on yourself, you're going to stumble and fall. You keep your eyes on him, then you're going to be okay. That's what he says. He says, I, God will be faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes that means... You have the ability through the wisdom of God's word, the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit, the community of believers to stand up to sin. Say, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. Other times, he says, flee, run, run for your life. Sexual sin is one, and he says in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What is idolatry? We already covered it selfishness, I'm God, I'm going to do what I want to do. You start having those thoughts, the Bible says what? Pride goes before a fall. But God will exalt the humble. You keep your eyes on him and him as Lord and him as God and him as ruler and him as boss and what his will is and what he wants for my life and what his word says and I'm going to seek his truth, then you're going to be okay. You start disagreeing with everything in the Bible and God being ruler of your life and I'm going to try to do things my way, then you're going to falter. You're going to go in the wrong direction. And the last thing is that, remember, the whole context, what was the whole context? Caring about other people. 
That's the context. So yeah, keep your eyes on Christ. But the other thing is it's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's not about me not sinning so that I can have a nicer life. Right? It's about me walking a life worthy of the calling so that I can help somebody else who's maybe just starting their walk to actually progress in their walk. Because there are other people around watching what you're doing, how you're living. I had this one thought. Somebody told me a little while back. I love this. They said, uh, I try to think every day. And I assume that there's a prayer in the morning or something. But how can I be a blessing to somebody today? How can I be a blessing to one person today? Just think about that for, for a minute. If you begin your day with that prayer, God, help me to be a blessing to one person today, then the likelihood is that you will be a blessing to a lot of people every day. Would you agree? Because what has happened is that you've begun to change your mindset from how can I accomplish what I want to how can I help other people that I come into contact with. And maybe I don't do any one particular thing that's hugely significant, but maybe everything that I do is a little better and a little more kind and a little more appropriate, a little more thoughtful. Amen? You get to bed every night and you say, God, have I been a blessing to somebody today? And maybe you've been a blessing to... One person, maybe a lot of people, or maybe you can't think of anything, but something has changed, which is your perspective, your attitude about what it is that you're doing with your life. I mean, if, if one person begins to do that from this morning on, I think you can see a ripple effect of some things changing. Would you agree? Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, your power. Lord, we, uh, we're amazed. We're amazed by you. We're amazed by what you can do with a life. Lord, we pray that you would take our lives, fill them with your spirit, your power, your goodness and grace, and uh, use us to do something significant in the world, Lord. We, we have a short amount of time. We don't know how much. It could be hours, it could be days, it could be decades, but uh, Lord, we want to make the most of it for your glory, for our sake and for those around us in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to, again, encourage you and offer you, I guess, the opportunity just to Whatever the Lord is putting on your heart, to bring it to the Lord, to lay it down, to commit. Sometimes we just have to make a commitment and say, yes, I'm going to do what you've put on my heart. And if we, if we add something physical to that, sometimes it'll stick. Sometimes coming to the altar is such a humbling thing. It really can be like, I don't want to go in front of all those people. And I don't want them to think something about me or but it might be what you need just to come and lay something down and say, yes, God, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Amen? Let's stand and sing.